The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my boat. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the big red bus, the bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Today, we're heading due north, and in the words of Jerry Seinfeld, we're making very good time. That please, would you just knock it off? Just sit in your seat over there. You're distracting me. We're making incredible time here. I once made it to Kennedy Airport from West 81st Street in, uh, in 15 minutes. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show is a little program designed to provide you with tips and tools that you can apply to your world to get your mojo working for yourself in or out of work or perhaps little tidbits that you can take away to share with a friend or a mate who needs a little something-something to get them back on the highway to Mojo Town Speaking of that, our driver of said bus, Robbo, good morning. Tickets, please. <laughs> and, of course, at the very back seat, as per usual, uh, AP, everything all right back there, mate? Are we there yet? As if he'd know. And navigating our ride today, our automated studio assistant, Lola. Hello, Lola. Hello, boys. Are you calling Lola an overrated satnav? No, not at all. I'm saying that she is a skill stacker. She's no longer just a ah, studio assistant. Nice. Now she has learnt uh, bus navigation. <laughs> it's a skill stack, which you will hear David Epstein talk about in episodes to come. We talk about being a generalist. But Why do I feel like I'm being done out of a job? Do you have a road trip track that can get us started this morning, Lola? Hmm, just a minute. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Um, all right, so... <laughs> To get us kick-started uh, in this little shenanigan, what have you got as a remarkable fact? Robbo's remarkable fact. Robbo's remarkable fact. It's about time. Let's go. Everyone knows the American flag, yes? Hello, our friends in America. Hello to our uh, big Don. And Mexico. Yeah. And China. Did you know the current American flag was actually designed by a kid back in 1958? A guy called Bob Heft made it as a class project and his teacher gave him a B minus and said <laughs> and when he when he complained when he complained the teacher said if you if you get it approved then I'll give you an A. So after two years of hassling and sending I presume letters and and phone calls back then, he got a call from 
President Eisenhower to say that his design had been approved, went back to his teacher and got the A. All right, I've got one to test you. Pop quiz, hot shot. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. You okay? Hit me. Lola, please play track one. Lola, play track two. Lola, if you will, play track three. What's the link between these songs and the musicians that played them? I have no idea, but I'm sure you'll enlighten me. (laughs) They all played Fender guitars. Nice. Now, Fender are a 73-year-old California-based guitar maker who make, of course, anyone who loves their rock and roll will know they make the Strats, the Stratocaster mm-hmm. and the Telecaster. They've been doing it since the 50s. And it's fair to say that along with Hendrix and Jeff Beck, a lot of the great guitar players all played Fenders. And the challenge for anybody today wanting to get a classic Fender is you've got to pay, what, 10 or 20 grand or even more <laughs> yeah, to get an authentic axe, as we say in the industry. So there's also the problem that if you're a working musician and you're taking that said 20 grand Fender to a gig, you don't want to leave that lying around or having some roadies throw it in the back of the truck uh, and or put it through <laughs> your amplifier stack. <laughs> so... My remarkable fact is Fender have created a new range called the Ventira, which is a series of iconic electric guitars all styled on the vintage aspects of the 50s, 60s and 70s guitarists. So it's all made in Mexico. Hello, our friends in Mexico. And it's all the Strats and Telecasters, Jazz Masters, Precision Basses. How cool is that? That's very cool, isn't it? So what, pickups and all that sort of stuff they've used? Yeah, the same ones. Wow. And here's, here's nice. another one for you, and here's one that you may be, be able to expand upon. Mm. Another famous Fender player is mm. this guy. Oh, so yeah. that is not only a nice segue into today's special guest, but I believe you have some news on said Dave Gilmore. I, yeah, just a little quick one. I just thought this was really nice and worth a mention. Speaking of guitars, Dave Gilmore recently sold a whole bunch of his for $21.5 million, including the black Stratocaster that he used on Dark Side of the Moon and a beautiful, and I've seen a video of a beautiful 12-string Martin steel guitar that he used on Wish You Were Here. But he's donated the money to a a climate change charity which is run by a 15-year-old Swedish girl called Greta Thunberg who started the, um, you know, the school strike for climate change movement that's going around the world at the moment? Uh, No, I don't, but... Continue. Yeah, okay. Well, it's sort of kids striking school for the day and protesting in front of Parliament about climate change and things that they believe are important to them. Um, And Greta was also nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize uh, at the end of last year. So Dave's donated all the money, $21.5 million to her, which I thought was a really, really nice gesture. Go, Dave. Um, And... Yeah, and get this, this is what he said. He said, The global climate crisis is the greatest challenge that humanity will ever face. We need a civilised world that goes on for all our grandchildren and beyond in which these guitars can be played and songs can be sung. How nice is that? Your head explodes.
John Zareski was a designer, like a programmer or a coder at YouTube and Google. And he and his co-author, Jason Knapp, became obsessed with the idea of redesigning time, which is so cool. John is the best-selling author of a book called Sprint, which is how to solve big problems and test new ideas in just five days. So it's a creativity process. And the book we're going to be talking about today is Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. Now, John writes for the Wall Street Journal, for Time, the Harvard Business Review, Wired, Fast Company, and he's a keynote speaker regularly on stage at places like Harvard and IDEO. So this this is a guy who knows his stuff. And this show is all about his book, Make Time. And it's not about crushing to-do lists or optimising every hour of your day. It's about creating time for priorities by rethinking all the defaults that we have around constant busyness and distraction. And I've got to say, we are stoked that John has been able to carve out some time in his day for us. So John, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. When, when people bump into you for the first time, John, and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, <laughs> I was just having this conversation with my my wife, who is my uh, most trusted advisor, and she was saying, you know, I think you don't have your elevator pitch quite down because uh, either I tell, tell people too little or I tell them too much. Um, but, but I usually try to mention that I spent about 15 years working in the tech industry as a designer and that right now what I'm doing is writing and speaking and teaching people about how to make time for what matters, whether that's in the office, you know, focusing on the work that really matters, or whether that's outside the office, at home, personal life, projects, family, and so on. Do you know, it's interesting, John, that from the get-go, you talk about focusing on what matters. And at the very start of your book, the very start, it says, this is a, it, this is a book about making time, but it's not a book about productivity. What would you say the book is about? I think the central idea behind the book is that much of what we do every day, the things that we do by default, are essentially reactions to outside forces. So the email that comes in, the interruption from our phone, the meeting that's on our calendar. And we just kind of go through these things um, on autopilot I think in part because they, they feel so unchangeable. They feel like they are, you know, that's just the way the world is. And that's what I need to do if I want to be a part of the world. Um, but but I, I have found that they are surprisingly changeable, um, that usually um, it's not the end of the world if you don't respond to the email in 15 minutes. And people usually appreciate it when you suggest canceling the meeting. So So the book is really about questioning those default behaviors not so that you can do more, because that's the essence of productivity, right? It's doing more, being more efficient, um, having more output, but so that you can do the things that are most important to you. You just mentioned there are these powerful forces which are pulling at us. So there is a person listening right now and they they will say that, a lot of people are saying the words they use are, I'm exhausted, I'm busy, I'm frantic, I don't know where time's going. And you said if that person's sitting there listening to this podcast and they've got 
an allocation of time, but they feel as though they've got these forces pulling at them for their time. Talk about the two biggest forces that are competing with us for our time. Yeah, what um, what Jake Knapp, uh, my co-author and, and good friend and I have noticed is that uh, most of our time seems to be sucked up by by one of two forces or both forces, I guess. Um, one is we call the the busy bandwagon, and that is sort of the the dominant workplace culture, and it extends beyond our workplace, but this idea that you you should always be busy, that you should be doing as much as possible. The answer to the question of why don't, you know, how, how can I make time for this thing is to do more of it, to be as efficient as possible. Um, but but it, anybody who has been on the busy bandwagon has felt how it can get out of control, how it can kind of become its own, its own beast uh, operating for its own benefit rather than serving us, you know, the people who, um, who are devoting our time to these, these busy work activities. Um, and, and that would be bad enough on its own if it weren't for the other side of it, the other set of defaults, which we call infinity pools. And these are usually, um, sources of entertainment. So they're the things that we do, you know, when we have that five minute break, we have that 10 minutes in between meetings or waiting in line and we reach for our phone and we open Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or the news or the stock market or whatever it is. Um, These sources of infinite content, anytime you can pull to refresh and new interesting stuff comes in, uh, that's an infinity pool. And it gets at the same psychology that makes slot machines and gambling so addictive. Um, and between sort of the, the demands and the expectations that we have for being busy with the, the, the nature of the content that we turn to when we're trying to, to rest, you know, to get a break from all the busyness, it just kind of spirals out of control and it leaves us feeling exhausted and, and frazzled and, well, busy, I guess, for lack of a better word. If we just can't they... In the, if we just go for a little dip in the infinity pool for a second, what I'm curious about is, John, that people are dipping in the infinity pool. They're going deep into the infinity pool and they're spending a long time in there. Yet when you ask them about it, they go, yeah, I don't do it very much at all. I, I hardly <laughs> ever go down to the pool. Why, yeah. why is it that it seems to be, it, it's just, it's not conscious? Because I hear people all the time go, I'm really busy. I've got no time. I'm frantic. I'm completely jammed this week. Yet they'll go, I just spent an hour watching this clip on YouTube about something. I just spent, have you seen this? I'll send it to you. And I go, I'm not interested. Why, why is it not conscious? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a super expert on the psychology of it, but, but, you know, it's the same reason why, um, you know, I don't know if, uh, if this is a, a major issue in, um, in Australia, but in, in the U.S., you know, there there are people who have problems with with gambling, you know, and I think um, people who go into casinos they uh, they experience that same sensation of time just disappearing. You know, they go in and they say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna play a couple slots, I'm gonna play a couple hands of blackjack," and they look up and six hours have passed, um, and and that's an environment which is tuned and optimized to make you feel that way, but the you know the the social media and a lot of the apps that we put on our phone, quite honestly, are are tuned to make us feel that way as well. They're they're engineered to be as friction free and effortless and compelling as possible. Um, and so I think it it triggers some 
uh, some very ancient part of our brain that uh, that that sucks us into this kind of flow state where we're just totally in the zone and not paying attention. See, I'm going to question you on that because I reckon you know more about it you're, than you're letting on. If you were if you were in Silicon Valley, and what drew me to you and Jake and the book was the fact that you worked at. YouTube, you were deep into it at Google. So you you were there creating those infinity pools that were encouraging us, tempting us, teasing us to go for a dip. Yeah. Is it is it now ironic that you were in the pool? Now you're standing outside the pool going, hey, listen, guys, you probably shouldn't go in there because it's stealing your most precious commodity, <laughs> your time away from you. Are you getting like a backlash from Silicon Valley? Are you getting a backlash from the people who were close to you who are still there trying to get us to go for a swim? We haven't gotten much of a backlash. And I, I think the reason is that um, if, you think about, if you think about the products that are being created in Silicon Valley, they, they certainly um, are problematic for our our time and our attention, our ability to control how we spend our time. But those same impulses and those same ideas and that same approach to technology permeates the work culture too. So the reason Jake and I started talking about this stuff in the first place is that we were working in these big tech companies. And yeah, sure, we were working on products that you know have all of the, the issues we just talked about. But, but the work culture in Silicon Valley is one of the most intense in terms of the way that it's saturated with information, with technology, the constant flow of messages from many different sources, the the number and the type of meetings that go on. And, and I think that part of why we've not only not had backlash, but actually been embraced. I mean, we've given talks at, at Twitter and, and Airbnb and, and Netflix. And I think part of that is that people who live in that world, they're so surrounded by it that they're, they're starting to wake up um, to, to you know, how challenging it is um, to do their work in that environment. And so much like you know, the rest of the world is waking up, I just think that the, you know, the people working in the, in the tech industry are kind of at the epicenter of all that. How do, they, how do they stride that? John, that's really interesting. So someone's working at Twitter. Their MO is to get us to spend more time in the pool yet they themselves are spending more time in the pool and by being there, they can't get their work done. That's a really curious p- position to be in. How, how would you navigate someone at Twitter who is facing that situation? How does someone take control when they really want to be doing it, but then they know that they're not doing their best work by doing it? The advice that I give to people in a situation like that is the same advice that I give to, to pretty much everyone, which is to... Uh, Try to identify the the devices, the apps, the sources of information that are the most challenging to you. The you know we call it distraction kryptonite. You know it's the things that you really struggle with, and then find a way to make those things harder to access. Another uh, big piece of advice is to think about your time in terms of busy time and quality time, so that you're not chopping up your day with lots of little administrative tasks, but you're clustering those together at the beginning or the the end or the middle of the day, depending on what works best for you. Um, you brought up a sort of related topic, though, which is how do you square this awareness of um, 
the challenges of managing one's time with the the nature of the products that somebody in Silicon Valley is working on. And, you know, perhaps this is a, a naive uh, answer or, or Pollyanna-ish, but, but um, the only way, the only conclusion that I can come to is that attitudes are changing, that even the people inside of these companies, um, I've got friends who work at at Facebook, at, at Twitter, um, and so on. And I think that they're, they're becoming increasingly aware of the problems um, and they're starting to make small steps toward improving things. But I think that um, the incentive structure, the way that their businesses are set up, is still, um, still does not, not fully encourage that. So um, I think that it's, it's, starting, it's starting to change and that's part of why we're seeing this interest from people who work in tech, but it's, it's got a long way to go. Do you think they can do something about it, John? That's such an interesting perspective, isn't it? That if you were one of those organisations at the top end of town, you did have the ability to make change. How would you adjust a product that wants you to spend time in the infinity pool, but then go, okay, now we're growing a social conscience. We know that, because it's not bad. I mean, this, the whole social media thing of Twitter and all that sort of stuff, it's not bad. It can be used for good. It's just that yeah, it's become absolutely. addictive and we are now driven to this thing and it's mindless. Do you, can you see a time in a couple of years where that could change? And do you know what would need to happen for it to change where it became a force for good and evil? I think that the, the answer... Um to the question of what needs to change. That's the billion dollar answer, or that's the, the, the trillion dollar answer. You know, I think um, that's what people are trying to figure out. Um, I think that the value chain has to change. Right now, um, most of the companies that we've been talking about, uh, certainly Facebook, Twitter, um, Facebook and Twitter probably being the primary ones are, you know, they operate on an advertising model which requires a certain type of engagement. Um, and so I think that the, way, the ways in which they make money, you know, their business model will have to fundamentally change in order to um, fundamentally change the incentives of the, of the products. I, I was actually talking to a friend uh, recently who works in, um, in the tech industry and, and he was, he, he's moving into a role where he gets to work on some kind of new uh, prototypes of, of possible future products um, for one of these companies. And his attitude was like, we can't tweak our way to fixing these old things because they're such juggernauts. They're so, so entrenched and there's such an economy built around them. And, and so he believes that, his, that the best shot is to create the next juggernaut, to, to create something that's, that's fundamentally built on a different model. And, uh, and, and I, I think that's a good way to look at it. It's funny because I want to put, I'm going to get Robert to put the indicator on here and the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show and take an off ramp, which is going in the same direction, but it's an off ramp. One thing you tweeted about recently, uh, see what I did there, Robert? Just tied it back to segue back into Twitter. Oh, um, mate, you're a genius. Yeah, legend. Um, <laughs> I can tell John's impressed. Um, you, you tweeted <laughs> that you got a new phone. And you said what was really interesting was you could then set it up the way that you wanted it set up so the phone was being a tool for you as opposed to you being a tool to the phone. And what it made me think of, 
and I actually mentioned this to a bunch of CEOs yesterday at a job I was doing, this exact story that you talked about, John, is that Mark McGurk, our guy from the UK, wrote a book called Solution Focus. And he said, the problem today is people start with the problem. And in your words just then was, we start with the problem, we try and tweak it to find a solution. The solution focus is stepping away from it and saying, take all that out of it. If you started from utopia, if you could build this or do this exactly the way you wanted with no problems, where would you start? And then work backwards. And as soon as I saw your tweet and then hearing you talk about, well, no, you've actually got to build the next thing, that's solution focus, not problem focus. Just talk us through how you did that with your phone to actually find your own solution. That is such a cool way to think about it because, you know, I, I'm the reason I got into all this stuff is that I'm a huge nerd. And, you know, I was a, I was a nerd when I was a kid and I'm a nerd as an adult. And so, you know, I think about um, futuristic technology and the things that I saw and read about in science fiction. And you think about a magical device in your pocket and what would you want it to do? You'd want to be able to um, communicate with people across the globe. You'd want to be able to access you know, the world's information. You'd want to be able to download a book in five seconds. You'd want to be able to see maps of every city on earth. And your phone can do all those things. It's absolutely amazing. Um, But you probably wouldn't envision a magical future device that could interrupt you at any point with, with, uh, you know, some pointless uh, bit of juicy gossip that you really don't care about. Um, And so that's kind of the attitude with which I approach all of the technology that I that I choose to to interact with, and so um, when I get a new phone, which isn't all that often, but every few years, um, I don't transfer from my own phone. I start from scratch, um, and I go through that process of questioning defaults. So I talked about you know how a lot of the things that we do by default every day are just reactions, um, and and our phones have they're they're kind of a perfect demonstration of of these forces at work because first thing you do when you get a new phone, and I, I've, my last few phones have been Android phones, although I used iPhones before that. But the first thing you do when you get an Android phone is you open it up and you sign into your Google account. And then by default, your email is going to be automatically downloaded and your phone's going to show you a notification every single time you have a new message. Uh, and that's the case with any app that you install. You install Twitter and automatically it's going to update on its own and it's going to show you a notification. Um, and and that's just the way things are. But all those things are changeable. Um, and so, you know, I log into my Google account because that's what I have to do. But I, I disable the email app. Um, I don't install any of the social media apps. Although, like you mentioned, I, I, I use Twitter. You know, in fact, I really love Twitter. It's, it's a tool that I, I really enjoy using. It's, a, it's a, one of my favorite ways to uh, keep up with the work that people are doing and, and communicate with people who are, who are you know reading my my work and, and participating in events that I do and that sort of thing. Um, but but I, I like to use it on my terms. So I don't install any social media apps on my phone. Um, I don't have I, I disable uh, any sources of news of like breaking news um, and I turn off all the notifications. And then I install the apps that feel really valuable and really magical to me. So I install the Amazon Kindle app. I install Uber. I, you know, it comes with Google Maps by default. I install Spotify so I can have access to virtually any music or any podcast I want at a moment's notice. Um, and, and, and that's really how I try to think of my phone is, um, you know, how can I make it as, as fun and magical and delightful as possible without allowing it to 
to you know suck up my time um, without permission. That's golden magic, brother. That's gold. Of course, I just I only install stuff that feels magical to me. I mean, imagine going through and doing order on your phone and saying it's a bit like Marie Kondo going through and saying, "Does this shirt <laughs> spark joy? Does this app spark magic?" I've never heard anybody yeah. frame that before. Is that how you would describe your relationship to? email and social media and apps? I don't think that those technologies always live up to that idea of being magical, but I, I certainly think it's a, it's a healthy, optimistic way of looking at technology because we, we touched on a lot of the problems with technology. And um, certainly if you pay attention to this stuff at all, you know that there's a lot of people criticizing the tech industry and the people who work in the tech industry. Um, my personal experience working in the tech industry is that there was never a meeting. I was never sitting in a meeting where people were talking about how to, uh, you know, how to make people addicted, how to suck them back in. Um, it was really, and again, this might be naive, but, but it really came from a place of how can we make this as useful and delightful as possible? people. Um, and I think it came from a genuine enthusiasm and optimism about what technology can do. So, so I, I, I still maintain a lot of that optimism. Um, and, you know, I, I do try to look at the technology I use through that lens. Although, you know, sometimes it's, it's just plain annoying, <laughs> but, but, you know, I try to try to give it the opportunity to live up to, to the, to being magical. It's through the book. There's a bunch of tactical things we can do to reinforce this philosophy that you guys have got. And I'm not sure if it was Jason, your co-author or an Adam Grant, or it was somebody I heard of recent times who talked about that they basically delete their Twitter or Instagram account off their phone. So when they want to go on to check whatever it is, social media app, they have to reinstall it. And they go, ugh, do I really have to, do I, really, do I need to go through all that? I right. won't bother, it's too hard. But they find that as a great barrier to have to get on because they're saying it's not bad. Like it sometimes there's a place for it. It's just, yeah, it shouldn't be my, my go-to default. And I've heard, I think it was James Clear on the show, or one of those guys said that he, come the weekend, he has a password to get into any of his socials, which he gives to his assistant, and she changes. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't know. So he can't get in until Monday morning at you know five o'clock. In yeah. this case, he's got no socials. Do you do you have any sort of red flags like that, or any systems you personally use to monitor your own time on socials? Yes, uh, I I do all of those things or things like those. <laughs> um, I, I I I don't have the. Uh, the luxury of having an assistant. So I have to settle for putting my passwords in a password manager app. Um, I, I use 1Password, which is also a good, a good thing to use just for um, security safety purposes. Um, but yeah, I, basically my philosophy is to make it as difficult to access the the distracting apps as possible. So anything where I might use it and then you know, look up 30 minutes later and think, oh crap, I just spent 30 minutes on Twitter. Those types of apps, um, I have kind of a chain of of barriers that I set up between me and that that effortless, friction-free swipe to refresh. Um, and and those are not having the app on my phone, 
Uh, that's first and foremost. Uh, and when you do that, by the way, you don't, then you don't have to worry about notifications. So a lot of times uh, people talking about the stuff, they say, well, first thing you should do is disable notifications. And to me, that's, that's, um, I think that's a thing that people do that makes them feel like they did something, <laughs> but, but fundamentally it doesn't, it doesn't change the relationship that you have with your phone. Um, because that stuff is still there. It's still always just a, a tap away. So I think removing the apps is, is really beneficial. Um, and then I oftentimes keep the, the web browser disabled on my phone as well. In cases where I do need to have it enabled, I log out of the web interface of all of those apps. Um, and and, and uh, Twitter is kind of my you know, the, the trickiest one for me, that's my distraction kryptonite. And so I log out of Twitter. I, my password is a random string of characters and I store that password in uh, one password. And so if for some reason I have the impulse, you know, and it just shows how powerful that these things are, that that impulse never quite goes away. If I have the impulse to check Twitter on my phone, I have to re-enable Chrome browser. I have to open up um, one password. I have to unlock the, the vault. I have to copy the password for Twitter. I have to go back to Chrome, twitter.com, log in. I have to paste the password and then I can see the tweets, um, which I do sometimes. Uh, <laughs> again, you know, showing how powerful these things are. And, and, and by the way, I, I think a, a you know, big part of what Jake and I wanted to do um, with the book was was be realistic and be human about it and you know and and recognize that nobody's perfect and that nobody has iron willpower um, but but those are the barriers that I set up to try to make it more difficult to get into that sort of mindless distraction mode the head of the show you mentioned your most trusted advisor which is your partner or your That's wife right. yeah isn't it curious that you just said that's how powerful these things are that we will do that in front of our most trusted advisor, like the person we love and respect and could not do without. We will yeah. follow our addiction right in their face right. and give that more attention and more of our most precious commodity, our time, than actually looking at them and talking to them face to face. Why is yeah. it that, and if our trusted advisor says something, we don't listen? What's the psychology you have found or is it just this powerful thing from knowing Silicon Valley, worked in it, writing the book, and then I suspect hearing hundreds of thousands of stories. Why, why is it so powerful that even our trusted advisor can't say, hey, man, put that down? Yeah, I think uh, sometimes we, we actually, we give ourselves a little bit more permission to, to follow those impulses and check those things um, because um, we, you know, we get comfortable with those who are closest to us and we think, oh, well, you know, my wife or it's my, it's my, it's my, my buddy, it's my good friend, my mate, as you would say, I, I, I see him all the time or I, I'm with her all the time. It's okay if I look at Twitter. Um, I, my understanding of the, of the psychology is that um, infinity pool apps, uh, again, anything that has a, a pull to refresh, um, taps into a very primal part of our brains. And that is uh, a psycho psychological effect known as the random reward or variable reward phenomenon. And the idea here is that if there's a relatively simple action you can take uh, that's relatively 
cost cost free. You know, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not difficult for you to do. Um, that has good chance of returning something amazing, something remarkable. We find those things very, very hard to resist. And so, again, think of uh, a slot machine. You know, it costs you whatever it might be. It costs, costs you a quarter, uh, twenty-five cents to pull that handle. And you know, most most times, nothing's going to happen. You're going to sort of muddle along, but occasionally, you might win big. You go to, you reach, you pull to refresh Twitter, and you know, most of the time, it's just kind of whatever. But occasionally, you see something really funny, really interesting, really insightful, and it reinforces. And from my reading of kind of evolutionary psychology, if you think about, um, you know, a hunter gatherer, somebody who is who is going out. Um, to look to collect food to eat, um, you know, it's you're sort of walking through the woods or the or the prairies or the the savanna or whatever it might be, and uh, you know, most of the time you don't see much, nothing much happens, but occasionally you come across something really amazing. You come across a you know a, a fruit tree or you know a, some some incredibly um, nutritious source of food, and so my understanding is that we evolved to really value those things. And now, of course, we have a level of abundance. That means that we we don't have to go out searching for that fruit tree. And so instead, that psychological effect manifests itself in the ways that we interact with uh, with money and with information. And it's sad we'll put that in front of our loved ones. I just don't, I shake my head with that. Mate, um, one of the really nice tools, and you talk about these specific things we can do uh, in the book, which is great. You talk about the uh, daily highlights philosophy, which I, I have talked to a lot of people about, and I think it's such a profound, simple thing we can do. Can you just talk through how you do that and why it works so well? Sure. So the idea with the highlight is to uh, start each day or maybe the, the night before, um, identify one thing that you want to kind of build your day around. And this could be something that you need to do at work, something you want to do at work even. could be an activity you want to do with your family or a hobby or project at home. And of course, it's not the only thing that you're going to do. That's that's totally unrealistic. Um, but but I, I have found that having one thing in mind for the day just creates a sense of clarity and purpose about all the other decisions that you're making. Um, it, it can it can provide reinforcement for you to maybe um, not try to answer that one more email because you know that you've got your highlight of going home and making dinner for your family to look forward to. Um, and at the other end, it can provide a sense of satisfaction. You know, if you're if you work on your highlight first thing in the morning, as I often do, um, you can you can start your day with a great sense of accomplishment, a sense that you put yourself first, that you made time for what was important to you first thing in the morning and the rest of the day is, it's kind of gravy, you know, anything else good that happens to you is icing on the cake. Um, and so, you know, there, there's been a lot of, I think there's a lot of different flavors of this idea. Uh, you know, there's, there's essentialism, there's, uh, the one thing that's a book, um, that that's become quite popular. And I think that they, all of these ideas tap into some universal truth that, 
Um, we were not built, we did not evolve to manage a thousand things in our head at one time. Um, and, and we're not robots, we're not machines. Um, and, there, and there's something very human about having that singular focus that, um, that you know, even if you got a lot, a lot of other stuff going on in your life, um, just having that that motivation and that clarity from that one focus can can really help to transform your days and transform your life. We, we create a highlight. And then the other thing you discuss with Jason in the book is at the end of the day, almost doing a debrief of the day, and you guys call it a reflection. Just yeah. r- run this for us, John. If I, if I go and do my reflection tonight, Robbo does his reflection tonight, is there a kind of a vibe of the actual questions because people want sort of direction with these things now. They look at the blank piece of paper and go, I'm going to do a reflection. What do I do now? Are there a, have you found quite powerful questions or something you do that assists somebody in giving them, I don't know, like a process to, to debrief their day or reflect? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, and we sort of spelled this out in the book. And, and even if, if you don't have the book, if you haven't read the book on our website, um, which is maketime.blog, we've got some kind of worksheets that you can download, you can print off. Um, and we're working on, on an app. So uh, for, for iPhone as well as Android, uh, a really simple app that will uh, prompt you to set a highlight and at the end of the day will prompt you to reflect. And yeah, there are, there are a few critical questions that we found. And I will say that, that Jake, uh, my co-author and I, we have, um, you know, because we're, we're nerds about this kind of stuff, we've spent many years and we've experimented with tons of different, you know, journaling formats and, and, and all sorts of things. And the questions that we put into the reflect step in make time, we think are just, they're just really high leverage, high value, really, um, really helpful questions. Um, the, the first one is, is really about what your highlight was and whether you made time for it in that day. And that's just, that's the thing that keeps you honest. If you start the day and you say, my highlight for today is I want to finish up the presentation that uh, I'm giving, you know, at the end of the week, um, at work. And then you ask yourself at the end of the day, did I actually do that? Um, it's, it's really simple and, and it's not, uh, it's not elaborate, but if the act of self-accountability, I think, is really helpful. Um, we also want to encourage people to have an experimental mindset. Again, I think we have this sense that the default behaviors that we go through are fixed, that they're set in stone, that they can't be changed. But, but a lot of these things really can be changed. And so one of the important questions when you're reflecting is to ask yourself, what what tactics or what specific things did I try to do today to make time, whether they're from the book or they're not from the book? And how did they go? Did they work for me? Do I want to continue doing them tomorrow or do I want to try some new things? So kind of getting in that, that experimental mindset. Um, we also ask people about how they felt, just sort of a general, you know, how was your focus level today? How was your energy level today? Which can be really helpful in sort of tracking patterns. Um, and then finally, we ask people about something that they're grateful for. Just a, a, a really simple question. What's one thing you're grateful for today? Which I think, um, again, is a, is a helpful bit of self-accountability, similar to asking about the highlight. Um, when, we can, when we can adopt an attitude 
of gratitude and of optimism. Uh, and we can find those things that we do every day that really feel worthwhile and really feel like good uses of time. The benefits from that can compound and we find ourselves making better and better and more intentional, more purposeful decisions in the days to come. And, uh, and so we think just a simple question about gratitude is really helpful. It's very evident during the book, John, and I, I really like, when we love having guests on the show that sort of talk about something but actually walk the talk, to put the rubber on the road, so to speak. And it is very evident that you test stuff, you get a result, then you test something else, you get a result, but you're always going back and actually debriefing. And we had a guy on the line a couple of weeks ago called Christian Bacusis, who's a call sign Boo, and he's a former elite jet fighter pilot. And he talked about the debrief oh. process that the yeah. Air Force, after every mission, everything they do, even the walk up to the aircraft, they debrief to say, what did I set out to do? What actually happened? Where's the gap? What am I going to do? Do you actually have a process for your debrief that you guys go through? Because you're testing and trying a lot of things because you're writing books, you're on the speaking circuit, you're now building an app for it. Is there a process that you've adopted that you use? Because I think a debrief is really important, but it's overlooked by a lot of people in today's world where we try something, it fails, we just try something else. We don't really debrief it properly to say, where's the performance gap? How do you do it? The reflect step, you know, the, the questions that I ask myself at the end of the day, um, they actually help a lot with that because, like I said, one of the questions is about which tactics did I try and which and did they work for me, um, and and so it's not it's not elaborate and you know and and calling it a debrief is almost giving it too much credit because it's really very lightweight, which which we we wanted to do to, on purpose to make it sustainable and and not make it feel overwhelming. Um, the other thing that I do personally and that you know I, I know isn't I know doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but but you know maybe maybe it could is. Um, is I talk about this stuff with other people, you know, I mean, people talk about, um, you know, they talk about what they're eating and they talk about what they're watching. And, and, you know, I think if you can mix in uh, conversation about, Hey, I tried this thing or, you know, over the weekend, uh, you know, my, my wife and I, we went for a hike and we left our phones at home, you know, and we'd never done that before. And that was kind of cool. If you can start to mix these types of things into conversations with your friends, um, that also provides a forum to to think about you know how it worked for you and and whether you might want to keep that as one of your your habits um, or whether you want to try something else or move on. If you are debriefing the actual book with Jason, you have finished it, you've put it out there, you obviously get a lot of feedback about it. You then go out. You're both doing interviews and doing speeches. You're getting a lot of feedback, a lot of stories from other people. In debriefing that, if you were to write the next chapter or another chapter for the book, what have you learnt since putting the book into the world? What have you learnt or thought about or heard that you would put into another chapter? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, if I was going to write another chapter it would actually be a chapter about money. And, and we, we considered doing that, but um, it felt, there, there's something about money. People, I think, um, have a wall up when it comes to talking about money or thinking about money. And we worried that 
having that as part of the book would um, would put people off. So we didn't do it. But but I think that it at some point, and I've certainly experienced this in my my own life. Um, you can only make so much time for what you want to do. You can only reclaim so much control over your own time before you run into the economic reality of the, the life that you live and the amount of money that it costs to live that life um, and your relationship to work. And I, I think that there, well, I, I know that there are ways to um, to buy back some of your time by literally investing money for the future. Um, and and that's what I would that's what I would want to write about if we were to write another another section or another chapter. Um, but but the feedback has been has been really interesting because you know there's some people out there who really want they want more tactics or they you know they want to share their tactics or they love the kind of nitty gritty the concrete stuff. But I've also gotten a bunch of notes from people who have said, um, "Don't invent any new tactics." I just want you to keep reminding me of the four yeah. steps, yeah. the highlight, laser, energize, reflect, because it's so essential and it's so so necessary and so true. Um, and this, you know, kind of productivity, self help, time management industry, if you will, is all about the new and the more and the what's the next framework. And so it's been really, uh, really cool, actually, very gratifying to get feedback from people saying, you know, don't follow that 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 path, stay focused on the essentials. Do you know, it's funny. It's um, such an interesting point because I think a lot of authors, speakers, people out there sharing stuff are looking for the next thing. And I was doing some yeah. prep work on an interview I'm doing with Jay Ferrugia from Renegade Radio in the next couple of weeks. And he talked about the story and he's a big fan of Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee said, first I learned the punch, then I learned, and I'm paraphrasing, I learned, first I learned the punch, then I learned a whole bunch of other stuff then I go back to learn the punch. And it was basically we learned these <laughs> fundamentals and we learned all the other stuff. And what we realise is actually the fundamentals are what I should concentrate on. And I don't know, just hearing you say that, it makes me think, well, with all this content we've got going out there, it's not about always the new stuff. We just need reminding that a punch is a punch. And in fact, we, we get caught up, but it's okay to just remind people of the fundamentals. That's, that's such a profound, it's a piece of stoicism right there. <laughs> it's one of the things that honestly keeps me very, very motivated to keep working on this stuff because um, it's not about trying to move on to the next big thing. Um, it's not about always trying to be be different or be be new or special. Um, it's I'm very excited by thinking of different ways to bring the same message to people, knowing that not everybody learns in the same way. You know, some people, they read a book and they, and, and, and they, they, they go and they apply it in their life and that's great. But other people, they need, they need help. They need tools. They need apps on their phone. They need courses. They need training. Um, and so to me, you know, getting that kind of feedback and thinking about what are the essentials and how can I reach as many people as possible with those essentials, that's, um, that's just something that I'm really excited to do. There's something that, and I'm very mindful of your time, so I've got a couple of more quick things to ask you about. You you talked about the might to-do list as opposed to a to-do list. What's the thinking behind a might to-do list versus a to-do list? It, it's partially just a a trick of, uh, of naming, um, sort of the subtle shift from this is what I have to do to 
these are the things that I might do. Um, and, and that reframing on its own, I find to be helpful. Um, and just to, just to sort of, uh, describe it for a second. Um, the, the, I think the typical understanding of a to-do list is a list of things that you have committed to do, that you, you need to do, um, that oftentimes will have uh, maybe a priority or a category or a time limit or something like that attached to it. And you can get you can get as fancy as you want um, with you know to do list apps and other things like that, um, and 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 it's also a thing that I think uh, there's the expectation that you're going to work from it. It's going to be sort of your plan. You know, what do I have to do today? Well, let's go check the to do list. Um, the might do list is like it sounds. It is a list of things that you might do. It's sort of the backlog or the back catalog for the things that you could pull out. And the, to me, the, the critical sort of behavioral shift is that you go through your might-do list and when you make a commitment to do something, you put it on your calendar. So you actually schedule time, which keeps you honest about how much you can get done and how long that thing is going to take. And it also avoids um, kind of the, the path of least resistance uh, thinking. You know, the, the person who sits down at the beginning of the day uh, and and plans out their day from a might do list. That's a person. That's a very different person than the person who who is sitting, uh, you know, sitting at their desk with you know with, with an hour before their next meeting, and they're like, well, what can I knock off real quick from this to do list? You know, what three little things can I check off the list? Um, and that person, both of those people exist inside all of us, <laughs> and 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 we all feel those different models. You know, we sort of feel the. The, the thinking and planning part. And we, we also feel that in the moment, what can I do? Where can I get that, that sort of you know, dopamine hit from checking that box? And so the, really the big reason that I use a might-do list instead of a to-do list is I want to encourage that thinking planning part. When I get to that point where I have an hour uh, before my next meeting or before the end of the day, I want to be able to trust that thinking planning version of myself from the morning who made the plan for the day and look at the calendar and say, all right, yeah, uh, earlier today, I decided that the most important thing to do with this hour was to continue uh, working on that that blog post. And so I'm going to keep doing that. I'm not going to succumb to the temptation to find the easiest quick hit off the to-do list and go check that box. So if we extend that a bit, John, we hear people talking about focusing on what matters and People always say what matters, oh, it's family, it's health, it's friendships, it's being of service to others, it's my kids. Yet our actions are completely, in most cases, completely contrary to that. We put so much stuff in front of all that, including our time in their face, in front of them face-to-face. When we are setting up this, how, how do we include into that day the focus on knowing what really matters and putting it front of center in our planning. What's the process you would take someone who's got 24 hours tomorrow? I'm going to go through the make time process and I want to make sure that what matters is there and it does matter. Step us through that. Sure. I would sit down and look at that person's calendar. So I I think that the calendar is the most underrated uh, productivity tool that there is um, because I think it's, it's amazing in its ability to uh, to provide a visual representation of our time um, and to keep us honest about what we can do and what we are doing. And I'm a big fan of 
blocking my calendar, which is to say kind of uh, pre-scheduling or blocking out time for specific activities. You know, it's funny, calendars, they start out empty, right? And then we fill them up with stuff. But sometimes I like to think about what if, what if a calendar started full? You know, what if, what if all my time was my time or it was all my time with my family? It was all my time for the things that are important to me. And then I was forced to choose which of that time I wanted to give away or I was willing to give away or how little of it do I need to give away in order to, to you know, the, make the money that I need to, to reach my goals, to do the work that I'm required to do to be a productive member of society. And so uh, when, I, when it comes to my personal calendar, I actually um, have been experimenting with a new tactic. I know I just said that, uh, you know, we don't necessarily need new tactics, but I, I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, I've been experimenting with something that I call calendar templates, which is basically um, I use Google Calendar, and so I have my regular, you know, my normal calendar that I put meetings and stuff on. I have another calendar in there that is, uh, it's the template for the days and the week. So um, it actually shows, uh, you know, when I'm going to wake up, when I'm going to have breakfast, um, the kinds of work I'm going to do in the morning versus the kinds of work I'm going to do in the afternoon, when I'm going to have meetings, when I'm going to be done for the day. Um, you know, I, I build in things like exercise. Uh, I build in a, enough time to take a lunch break. And then rather than start from an empty calendar and build it up, I start from that full calendar. I start from that template and I go in and I edit things as possible. And so I see, oh, you know, I've got this request to do this meeting, um, you know, and they can only meet at at two o'clock, but that's when my template says that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be exercising. So then I have to make the decision, you know, is that a trade-off that I want to make or can I move one or the other of these things or can I shorten them both so that they both fit or whatever. Um, but, but to answer your question, I would start with the calendar and I would encourage people to start by drawing in time for the things that they want to do. If they want to be home in time to make dinner for their family and sit down around a table, draw that in. Draw in, um, you know, this is when I need to leave work so that I can I can stop off at the store, I can get home, I can have time to prepare dinner. And this isn't going to be an overnight transformation. It's yeah. not like you can you can sit down in front of a crazy packed calendar and and delete it all and start over. But you can start to make little tweaks and each day you can adjust it a little bit more and you can kind of take this experimental mindset, this iterative mindset to, um, you know, each day, one day at a time, become a little bit more intentional about how you're spending your time. That's gold. That is absolute gold. Fill your calendar and say, what are you prepared to give away? <laughs> I love that. That's, re that's really, really good. I love it. A uh, couple of quick things, speaking of time, because I'm conscious of yours. Sure. This is something I've been pondering for quite a while, and I'm really curious to hear your answer. In your mind, can we slow the hands of time? Yes. All right, we can move on then. <laughs> uh, I think we've all felt it. Um, I think that if, for me, when time goes slowly, it's because I am engaged in some form of quality time. I, I think of my time as quality time versus busy time. And, and they're both necessary um, and they're both important. Um, but busy time goes by fast because busy time is chopped up by a lot of little things, a lot of interruptions, a lot of requests and demands. Um, and for me anyway, and I don't know if this is a universal truth, 
Um, and I, I have not studied the, the science of how we perceive time, although I know plenty of folks have, and there are some interesting books out there about it. Um, but for me, busy time goes fast for me and quality time where I'm focused on some activity, whether it be work or uh, you know, personal passion, hobby, uh, just you know, going for a walk or hanging out with my wife or cooking or whatever, that time goes very slow. And so I have found when I can fill my days with as much quality time as possible, that's how I can slow the hands of time. An observation of you guys with the book is, and I'm going to thread a few things together, but I, I, I recently read Pat Flynn's book, How to Be Better at Almost Everything. And he, <laughs> I love that title. Yeah. Look, it's, 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 and it's something I've been, it's become a thread in the show and it's something I'm fascinated by. And I think it's really a profound thought. And the book is about basically skill stacking and becoming a generalist. And the principle is you become 80% good at skills as opposed to having to become an expert. And then you find the fringes of things you can stack as a skill. You deep dive into them, get 80% good, stack it, then go on to the next thing. And so you build these these stacks. And David Epstein has got a book about to be relaunched in the next couple of weeks called Range. And it's all about the the world of the generalist. So he's He's agreeing with the same principle. When I read your book and was looking at the stuff you've done, you consider yourself to be time geeks. You've obviously worked deep in Silicon Valley on some of the best brands in the world, but you're also into design. You're also illustrators. And it just seemed to me that you actually had these skills that you've stacked upon each other to allow you to come at time and make time from different perspectives. Is that a conscious thing? Is that something you guys are aware of or is it just something that happens because you just went, that's interesting, let's do it. That's interesting, let's do it. Is it conscious? Mostly no. I would say that it was not, a, um, I can't speak for Jake, but for, for myself, I did not consciously develop a set of skills or a set of interests that would position me to write this book. Um, but but I I do think that we are conscious that those are the people that we are, um, and 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 that's not because of some amazing self awareness or clarity. It, it, it partially is because of the people that we are lucky to work with, you know, editors and and publishers and and agents and all, all those people who are involved in something like creating a book. Um, but I think that we have we have developed a level of awareness about the unique perspective that we have and the unique set of skills that we have. And we, we figured that, I guess we made the bet with, with Make Time and with our first book, Sprint, that, um, that presenting the book, creating a book that only we could create, um, a book that is sort of a unique result of our skills and our perspective would be better, would be more valuable um, it would have more upside than trying to trying to you know become the very very best at writing yet another you know productivity book or yet another um, you know design process book. And so you know we we've tried to kind of make bets on on uniqueness um, rather than sort of going toe to toe in the I guess more conventional uh, you know battles in these industries. Great word. I had a bet on you, Nicholas. Uh, people finish this show, buy into what you're going to do, grab the book, they're into you guys, Jay-Z and JK. 
they want to be constantly reminded because willpower today is something that sadly we don't execute enough. What's the relationship in your mind between time and willpower? How do those two things come? Do they come together? And where's the intersection of those two things? My view, and again, this is this is based on kind of studying this stuff and reading about this stuff, as well as what I have felt in my own life. My view is that willpower is not as useful as we like to think it is. Uh, I think that people who appear to have great willpower actually have great environmental or structural advantages. Um, and those can be truly in their environment. You know, they've configured their their uh, workplace environment or the, the their habits at work or their habits at home or their, their physical home. They've configured it to encourage and support great decision-making, but it can also be kind of structural things inside our heads. And so mindsets are really, really valuable. Um, if you think of somebody who, uh, you know, to use the, to use a, a sort of common example, somebody who wakes up um, every morning at a certain time and makes their bed right away, you know, um, does that person have amazing willpower or have they adopted a mindset that they're just the sort of person who makes their bed every morning? Um, and, and when I first heard about this kind of thinking, I, I didn't believe um, that it, it would work very well. I, I didn't believe that mindsets um, were all that powerful, but the more I read about it, the more I came to believe that um, you can sort of, you can create a structural advantage for yourself in your own brain by adopting a certain mindset. And so um, I think that, I think that willpower is not something that we can cultivate. I don't think that it's necessarily the place we should look to change our behaviors. I don't think we should try to develop more willpower to, to get better discipline, to be stronger about these things. Instead, I think we should accept that we are um, that we are human beings who respond to our environments, both the environments that are physically in the world around us, as well as the environments in our head. And we should, we should seek to change those environments and that that's a much more uh, productive and fruitful path to changing our behavior. Man, we could do an hour on that. <laughs> That in itself. Um, I'm going to let you go. You you tweeted uh, something from the Daily Stoic, which I think is Ryan Holiday's laneway. Yeah, I start my day with the Daily Stoic. Do you? So yeah, I just, here's one that I, I I just thought this is a, a lovely quote that you put out into the interwebs. You said, "Instinctively, we protect our physical selves, but when it comes to the mind, we're less disciplined." We hand it over willingly to social media, to television, to what other people are doing, thinking, or saying. Is that at the core of the mission for you and Jason is to help people to basically protect our mental minds? It is, yeah. I think that's a good way to put it, um, although not necessarily the way that we described it in the book, but it's um, the mission that I've been thinking about more and more lately is to help people develop the capability and the skills that they need to manage all these new things. Uh, you know, the, the technology that we're talking about, the, the apps, the, the media, the information we're talking about, it's new. It's not, it hasn't been around very long. Um, the, the, iPhone is 12 years old and the first couple of years it didn't have apps. I mean, it had the pre-installed apps, but there was no app store. So 
we are, you know, as human beings, we've been around on this earth for 200,000 years, give or take. Um, and suddenly we are inundated with, with basically a completely new world that we are trying to function in. <laughs> as a friend of mine uh, likes to say that we're not prepared for the world that we've built around us. Um, and so my mission is to help people develop that capability, develop those skills. And I think a big part of it is um, to do what, what you suggested, which is to um, structure our lives so that we can make the decisions that we want to make about how we spend our time, about how we protect our time, our attention, our energy, um, so that we can do the things that we want to do. Because if we don't, uh, we're just gonna we're gonna go through life on autopilot, and uh, and and that's no way to live. That's such an interesting perspective. That it's just learning how to cope with this unique world, which is being coming from us from our lifestyle and our technologies. It's just, uh, it's just gold. I think, um, Robert, it's fair to say that I've loosened him up. <laughs> I think I've, I've, I think he's had me on the ropes. I think he's, I'm doing a bit of rope at the moment, just trying to survive, trying to keep up. But I think he's sufficiently warmed up for me to throw to you, for you to <laughs> just close him out. Well, should we nifty 90 him? Nifty 90 him. To the canvas, you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> this would be fun. This is, this is a heavy weight up against a lightweight, that's for sure. Yeah, that's it, exactly. <laughs> a featherweight. Uh, are you ready for the Nifty 90? I think so. All right, let's do this. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's Nifty 90. Let's go start the clock. 90 seconds. Here we go. What's the last book you read? Well, The Daily Stoic. I read it every day. Something you've always wanted to do but haven't? Grow my own food. What's the last app you downloaded onto your phone? Android Auto. Your favourite pizza topping? Uh, the big questions here, as you can see. <laughs> I yeah. know. I, I guess pepperoni. Pepperoni, nice. <laughs> oh, I had pepperoni last yeah. night. <laughs> Some, <laughs> like a man. Something you need to stop doing, eating pepperoni. Right, yeah, that's probably <laughs> uh, Staying up too late watching TV. What's your favourite sports team or sports personality? Uh Hands down, the Green Bay Packers NFL team uh, and Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback. Because uh, I think it's in my DNA. I grew up in uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, and uh, my my grandmother is actually from Green Bay, uh, and she. This is a fun family, a bit of family uh, trivia. When she was in high school, my grandmother, when she was in high school, she was a Green Bay Packers cheerleader. Oh, oh wow. wow! Hello to Grandma Zaratsky then. What's three words you would use to describe yourself? I think I got him. I think he's on the canvas, guys. <laughs> uh, uh, happy to help. Oh, nice. nice. Uh, dogs or cats? Favorite? Cats. I have two at home. The best memory of your school days? The summers. <laughs> the last movie you watched? Uh, Green Book. If your house was burning down what and your kids and family and animals and et cetera were safe, what three items would you grab? I would, I would, uh, I've got some photographs that I do not have in digital form. I would grab those. Um, I've got a couple of, couple of old books that I'm sure are replaceable, but I, you know, I really like them. I would grab those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would probably grab my phone because it would come in handy. Yeah. If I was, if Absolutely. I found myself, uh, standing on the street in my pajamas trying to figure out what to do. You're out of bed in the morning, having that first cup of coffee. You've been on, your mojo's just not happening. You've been on Twitter. Even that's not doing it this morning. 
Um, what is the song that you go to on your headphones, on your radio, in your car, on the way to work to get your mojo going and suitably and get yourself suitably prepped for the day? Well, it's not a specific song, but I. Uh, every day I listen to this uh, this jazz radio station called oh, WBGL. It's from nice. Newark, New Jersey. Yep. Uh, I used to only listen to it when I traveled to New York for work. It would be on the you know, it's on the radio. It's an FM station, and I, I I discovered. I mean, it's not a groundbreaking discovery, but I realized that I could listen to it streaming on the internet. So I listen to that all the time. It's the perfect thing um, when I'm when I'm not feeling it when my mojo is not working turn on wbgo and uh, and the day the day improves magically I have to say, I'm with you there. I was listening to a bit of Miles Davis while I was setting up for this interview this morning. So there you go. Excellent. Yeah, one of my favorites. There you go. John, this is, um, honestly, I've really enjoyed this. I could talk to you for hours about this particular topic. I think your the way you articulate the philosophies that you and Jason have written about in the book, it's a really, really great book. And I think it's such an important topic. It's going to become more important which is a Queensland term for important. <laughs> um You've been very generous with your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. You did mention before the hub for the book. Where do we go to find out more about you guys? Yeah, the website for the book is maketime.blog. And that's where we've got articles, we've got tools and resources, a bunch of good stuff. And then... um, Best way to keep up with me is is on Twitter, for better or worse. Uh, I'm Jazzer, J-A-Z-E-R, and uh, that's that's a good way to to follow me. I think when we promote the fact this show's out, Rob, I was going to say we've got Jay-Z on the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke that never gets old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine thousands of teenagers turning on the Mojo radio show and going, who are these old farts? <laughs> yeah. So do you ever get... Who were the authors? Jay Z and the Napster. <laughs> Actually, that could be that could be that'll be the heading for the show. Jay Z and the Napster, world exclusive. Jay Z and the Napmeister. Uh, John, thank you, mate. It's been um, such a privilege. I love the stuff you're doing. Your way of articulating, I just love it. I, honestly, I've got another two pages of stuff to ask you about. But um, thank you for giving us your time. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, maybe we could uh, we could do it again sometime. We could- talk about the rest of that stuff on your on your paper the mojo radio show so before we close this little shindig a little reminder that we are running a campaign on the very cool patreon page where we are looking to spread the message wider across the world help more people get their mojo working upgrade the studio equipment and do some other stuff so patreon is a page where if you like what people are doing in the creative endeavor world you can make a contribution and if you do you get this the mojo radio show has been keeping this under lock and key Explosive Hits 2019. It's a priceless collection of mojo-changing hits with Noel Razor Smith. Ten years the things you learn in the criminal life in the straight line. Amy Moran. 
you have something like 65,000 to 70,000 thoughts a day, a lot of them are going to be negative. A lot of them are filled with self-doubt. Explosive Hits 2019. 22 glittering stars with Tate Fletcher. Stop lying to yourself. That's what I would say first of all. You've got to stop lying. Ivor Davies, Maria Gronberg, Simon Marshall, and classic Karek Ashley. Because most people, they're living their life like there's no ramification to it. Think of the worst case scenario. And you go, that's it, I'm done. Explosive Hits 2019 with Dave Acosta. Now you're recognizing that being more aware is actually rewarding in a good way to you. Explosive Hits 2019. It's a pure gold collection. A bucket load of our greatest hits. And it's waiting for you on the Mojo Radio Show Patreon page. Out now from KTEL. The feedback's been really good on that show. I mean, it's, what is it? What does it run? Two, two and a half hours. Two and a half hours <laughs> show. It's more of us than you would ever want to hear in a lifetime. I would have thought, but it's great that we're getting some good feedback. And it's a show that you can only get if you are supporting us on Patreon. Thank you to all the people who have jumped on board so far. It means the world to us. It's a fantastic show. And in addition, if you do support us, you will receive a monthly backstage pass, which is all the stuff hits the cutting room floor, and we'll send it to you each month along with the Explosive Hits 2019, which Lofty was very kind enough to help us with as well, and AP and all the crew, and Lola. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. i uh, got a question for you from your Facebook page over the weekend. Did you catch anything? Negative. <laughs> For those who didn't see it, Gary f- posted a photo of himself having a little fish in the dam. Uh, but, you know. Nah. I, <laughs> sadly, I think it's uh, it's it's a symptom right. of a cause which we'll be discussing in the coming weeks with a guy called Dr. Zach Bush where I think what mm-hmm. we are doing to our land and our soils is affecting our tributaries and our river and the wildlife on the banks and in the rivers. And, yeah, once a very lively, recognised, renowned trout stream is a little quiet for the angler. Dead. Mm. Wow. Which is sad. It's a shame, mm. isn't it? Yeah. There's also a lack of frogs and there's a lack of crickets yeah. and all the stuff that you expect to see around these tributaries. And I think Australia is suffering it, but I think it's absolutely worse in the States. And Dr Zach Bush it will give us a very compelling reason as to why this is all happening. It's a fantastic show. All right, everybody, this is Jason Overcome Redman. I may have survived an Al-Qaeda ambush in Iraq, but it was even harder to survive the Mojo Radio Show. You know, if we go back through six seasons, time, well, whether it be time, productivity, uh, getting organised would be by far one of our most popular topics, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I would. I would think so, and it's certainly one of mine. That's for sure. And given given the fact that time is our most precious commodity, and we know it's going by fast, the sad thing is, I reckon we give it away freely every day, and we give it away to as Jocko would call it, the enemy, which is social media, other people's agendas lethargy, lack of focus, distractions. And I just hope that from this show, I guess the thing for me with this show is take away one or two things you can implement into your world 
but don't just copy what John says. Take it and apply it to your own world. Because what I hear a lot of people doing, particularly people are hosting shows like this, is they just want to take everything somebody says and jam it into their world. And I heard your friend Dan Pink the other day talking with a, a girl on a show, and she said, I'm going to do that. And he said, well, no, don't, he said, because it may not work for you. This is my opinion of what I've seen and how I do it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be right for you. And the reason I'm saying this, because there was an interesting note that John put out on the socials a couple of weeks back when I was doing my research for the show. And he wrote, do we tend to think we have to be perfect? Every day has to be just right. And in doing so, fall into the trap of perfectionism. And perfectionism stands in the way of a great idea. And we've got a guy coming up, as I mentioned earlier in the show, David Epstein, which I'm really excited about. He's got a brand new book out called Range, and it's about the world of generous and how generous are going to take over the world, so to speak. And it's just a really interesting premise that perfectionism is getting in the way. And I think we need to take the pressure off ourselves, take great ideas to experiment in how do we not actually conserve time or make time, but how do we focus our time to get the most out of our day? So with that being said, Lola, how about giving us some options of a play out song? So what do you got on songs on time, Lola? How's this one? Yeah, it's good, but we're talking about moving forward, not looking back. So what else? (laughs) Nice. Uh, Lola, what else you got? Ooh, good song. It's good lyrically song. a really strong song. I think we've actually talked mm. about Mellencamp before when he's with David Letterman. So should we try again? Lola, let's do one more. You love a bit of fooies. I can never have too much fooies. It's a great way to get out. Let's roll with the fooies. We're out.
It's times like these you give and give again. It's times like these you learn to love again. It's times like these time and time again. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.